This is the Saddler's Post, conversations on horses, leather trade, and the art of saddlery, with our host, Christian Love. Our guest today on the Saddler's Post is Trent Peterson of the Wild and Us Saddlery, located in the Methow Valley of Washington State. In 2017, Trent rode from Mexico to Canada on the Pacific Coast uh, Crest Trail with wild mustangs that he adopted from the Bureau of Land Management. Trent gentled and trained the mustangs he used that began as untouched animals from the BLM, then traveled the length of the PCT to promote and raise awareness for ataxia. Ataxia is a hereditary disease that took Trent's father's life from him. By choosing the Mustang to complete this journey, it was an attempt to also raise awareness for the challenges wild horses face in the wild and in holding facilities. Ultimately, the hope was to raise awareness and donations for both foundations to keep the wild in us alive. In order to continue this mission, after the ride was completed, Trent opened a leather shop to build up the popularity of the saddle he designed, built, and used for the ride. In order to continue to support this cause, 3% of all sales are donated to Ataxia Foundation, which funds research into a cure and provides assistance to families that are affected by this disease. Well, Trent, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I, uh, so thanks very much for coming on. The whole yeah. premise of my, you know, desire to do a podcast was, was you are like, you know, the poster child for it because, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking for saddlers who, who have a purpose and a reason. So I would love for you to expand on, you know, what, what really caught my attention was that you, you know, most people would focus on your accomplishment of doing that ride, which any horse person will tell you is like just phenomenal. And here I am as the saddle geek going, wait a second, like you made your own saddle and did that ride in it. So tell me, you know, what came first? Like, did you, did you build that for that ride and had never built one before? Or, you know, what's your background in saddlery? Yeah, it was very much so a cart before the horse type situation. Um, <clears throat> my background is zero, absolutely none. I was not born and raised into this. Uh, you know, I don't have any family members that are saddle makers. Um, but it was something that has always fascinated me, just owning different saddles throughout the years. And kind of reverse engineering them in my head. I mean, you spend a lot of time sitting in them and just kind of thinking when you're going down the trail. And I would just start reverse engineering them or pick them apart, get extra, you know, overcritical with them. And say, okay, I like this about this style, but why doesn't it have that? And so then I would go get a different style of saddle. You know, I rode a Australian saddle. I rode a slip fork wade. I packed in a McClellan saddle. Um, I packed in a swell fork. None of them had the things I liked or that I wanted in, in a saddle or I, I believe the saddle should be, which is something that's more than just the thing that carries me on the horse. Uh, it should serve multiple functions. You know, everything we take into the backcountry, um, when we're counting pounds, you're going, well, how else can I use this item? Can I only use it in this one way? So if I can only use it in this one way, 
is it really worth or important or worth the extra weight to take it with me? I'm on the line of thought that if I can't use it in multiple ways, then I really, really don't need it. Um, and so I'll just go ahead and leave that behind. And the same thing with the saddle. I can only sit in the saddle and go down the trail. Then what about all the other what if that could happen along the way? With packing, we're, I was taught to plan for the worst and hope for the best. And, um, you know, I've, I've seen pack saddles get destroyed on the trail. Now you've got all this gear that you still need to get out. The traditional uh, line of thinking is, well, divide that amongst the other animals and let's, let's pack it out. But now we got one animal that's totally empty and everybody else is carrying the burden. Why can't I just convert my saddle into a pack saddle and then we all and i and then i just end up walking um and then nobody is having to take no other animal is having to carry any extra weight than it ought to um so that's kind of that, what started that line of thinking but that that all happened well before i uh i did the ride <clears throat> um and when i when i started planning for this ride, then that's when it really became apparent to me that I needed to uh, build this thing or have it made. And I had gone and talked to several different saddle makers and they all kind of took the traditional approach and said, well, that's, um, that's not what I do. That's not the style of saddle I build. Or if they did say that they could do it, it was rightfully so <laughs> they're going to charge me way more money than I could afford. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's the same price that, uh, I, I sell my saddles for today, the tools, the hours, the knowledge, everything that goes into it. And if, and if you're coming to somebody with a, with an idea drawn on a piece of paper, they're going to have to spend even more time into it. Right. Yeah. For and sure. yeah. So, I um, I said, well, I can't afford that. So I guess I'm just going to have to make that myself. And that then set me down the path of what are all the things I need to build the saddle? First thing is the tree. Um, and then my leather and, and just kind of built up on top of that. I called up a friend of mine who had a saddle shop. And I said, can I use your space? I just need, I, mean, I don't physically have this space. And he said, yeah, sure. Come on in. So I spent four and a half days in his saddle shop and I built that first saddle. And that was the, that was the very saddle that I ended up riding the Pacific Crest Trail with. Um, and I didn't have any of my Mustangs at the time too. But I knew I needed to, to this was going to take a minute and I needed to figure it out before I, went ahead and I got the horses and uh because by the time I got the horses I was gonna and they were done training I was gonna be on the trail as far as the timeline went. Um so yeah that's that's kinda how it all <laughs> all happened there. Was that's necessity that's, and it, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. I just love that. I mean similar background in mine is in a sense that uh, necessity drove me 
uh, to it. Like, yeah. you know, I was selling saddles and to be honest, felt like a bit of a fraud, not even knowing how one went together. And, you know, and then when you get asked a technical question and you're kind of, I was told that the answer to that question is, and I always hated that. So to yeah. start exploring how they're built. So when you first started investigating trees, mm-hmm. what what was that like? Because I find that's the most mysterious part. Saddlers tend to not uh, be forthcoming about sharing where they get their trees. And then to be honest, you know, my background brought up English riding. I've sat in a Western saddle, I think, three times, <laughs> you know, nothing about it. Yeah. And the term wade yeah. tree, wade saddle. And I thought, I don't even know what wade means. I, you know, and then I do like a two second internet search. It comes up, well, no two people agree what a wade is. And I thought, oh, here we go. This is the same in English saddlery as Western. So, <laughs> kind of walk me through how you ended up with the tree you did. You're absolutely right in that saddle makers, we tend to hold the, the who makes that tree as kind of a coveted deal. Because uh, the reason being there is a saddle maker, once he, once he gets going and he has the style of tree he wants or that he likes, that generally took a lot of back and forth between the tree maker. Um, and so when somebody comes up to you and asks you, Hey, I really like that tree who makes it, it's a little, it's a hard pill to swallow to know that if I just tell you, you're going to call them up and say, Hey, I really like the wild in a saddle tree. Can you make me one? And then in a 15 minute phone conversation, you just took up five months worth of investigation work that I had to go do on my own. And you got that for free. Excuse me. Um, that being said, I I definitely take the approach that knowledge is shared and it's not owned. And so if you're serious and you want to get go down this road, yeah, privately I'm I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to let you know um, who I use and why I use them, and I might give you a few extra um, other options for price point too, because there's a huge huge cost uh, difference between tree makers out there and some people they can afford you know a thousand dollar uh tree from new zealand or they're they're more in the market of a 500 dollar cnc made tree you know um and <clears throat> for me when i found my uh my tree and, and came up with that it was i came across a, a fellow that he kind of share the same ethos is that you know this is this knowledge is to be shared so here you go call you know call call this tree company and give give them a um an outline of what you want to do and it's going to take a few months but you'll get a tree sent out and if you like it go with it and if you don't send it back and try it again um and the reason why i wanted the wade style tree is you got the australian saddle with ollies on it you know help your legs stay in when things get a little 
little bronchine. And that's what your Western swell fork saddles are, are really are for too. But at the time I had a slick fork wade and with those buck and rolls. And so for me, the logic behind adding more weight to a, to a saddle tree with actually adding more wood, which is much heavier than say a poly or a buck and roll, I couldn't get with. I didn't like that. So there led me down that path of the wade style tree. Um, and then the horn on it, you know, the big stout BC three and a half inch thick post on it. You know, it's all laminated wood in there and it, it, it's not going anywhere. So it's a horn that I can work with and it's a horn that I could take a beating. And if I wanted to convert this into a, a pack saddle, it needed to be able to hold some actual weight to it. And so that kept me going down that path of this wade style tree. And um, you know, the, the lady wade is generally one of the lightest, lightest trees that you're going to get. And that was my big thing with all my Western saddles I owned and or was around was just their weight. They were just absurd, you know, 55 pounds being the average weight of a saddle I was having to deal with. And that's without saddlebags. That's just a fence and stirrups and and that's it, 55 pounds. And then you, then you get someone that's, you know, 200 pounds getting into the thing. And now you got way more weight on that animal than you would dare put on a mule. But I didn't sit, that didn't sit well with me. So that lady weight style tree, just a little bit shorter bars for uh, more of that Mustang style back, which is a little bit shorter, it's, it's stout. It can take a beating, but yet it's lightweight enough to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish, what I think a saddle should be. Yeah. I mean, I look at uh, on your website, uh, the Wild and Us, uh, the Packer saddle, and I look at that and I think that's that's someone who's thought about there's nothing on there that doesn't need to be. That's what I look at when I look at that saddle. It's like... Um, you know, and, and, and just talking to you now, it makes sense that, you know, it's, it's, it's function, you know, it has, it's a tool for a job and the job is going places that, uh, yeah. you know, not many people decide to go willingly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I think it should have form and, you know, form and function, function being the first and then form, uh, second. Uh, but you know, we don't have, it doesn't have to be just this godly thing. You know, it could still be beautiful, but functionality at the end of the day, this thing's a tool. It's yeah. Not a fashion statement. You know, I've said that to clients for years, you know, saddle is a tool for a job. And, you know, when you start telling me all the things you want in a saddle, um, you know, all I'm hearing is static until you hit on keywords about what you're actually going to use it for. And then, you know, yeah. and then I think, um, you know, there's a lot of the industry, you know, I was kind of smiling and nodding to myself as you're explaining how you got into it. And, and you know, when you start going to, you know, door to door and saddle makers saying, this is what I need. And they're not really into prototyping and developing sometimes is because, hey, look, we found our niche. We make this, you know, double skirted, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, heavy, big things that are beautiful to look at and they look great at, the, you know, Arizona when we go to a show and whatever. But it's, um, yeah, it's so nice to see, um, you know, what you've come up with that is really, it reminded me of what uh, cavalry or, um, you know, you know, any of the research historically that I've done is that, you know, weight, um, like with a McClellan saddle or whatever, like weight was such a huge factor. Um, right. how, how much weight are you, what are you aiming for? Like a, with a pack horse, is it per person? Like you're, you're, you want, we're all allowed plus rider this amount of weight, or is it, you know, Hey, look, I'm, a mule of this size with this type of confirmation, we're only going to do X. How do, how do you figure that out? For the actual load, what I'm going to put on the mule. Yeah. Um, that the general rule of thumb, there's 150 pounds. That's, that's pretty general. You know, and that's going to be that's taking account for the, you know, our little tiny 14 hand mules all the way up to a big, draft cross guys that being said um and, and, and for the commercial industry that's a really easy um number to use because it covers a wide spectrum of, of animal types and then then when you try to figure out can i do this trip or not with the people and you've already factored in how much your kitchen's going away and we have this many people, X number of people divide that across, you know, I've got four, four meals just for the kitchen and then uh, eight guests coming with me. Then I just say, this is what you're allowed to, to bring. Now, <clears throat> um, and, and it's, you know, that way, that way it's charged out per meal. But if you go like Montana, I know out there, they literally charge charge by the pound, not by the mule. And uh, when they speak of how how many trips they've done, it's not so much how many trips or how many days they were out. It was how many pounds that they hauled for the season, season total yeah. weight. Um, and then that way they can just go, all right, we've got 300 and 75 pounds or whatever we got to take in i'm going to use that meal and that meal because i can split that up evenly you know more appropriately i got a little bit of bigger meal over here and a smaller meal over there so big guy he's going to take a little bit more of the weight little guy he's going to take a little bit less of the weight but you know like the military man they they used to put you know 350 pounds 400 pounds on an animal oh yeah yeah um and and just pack them but they looked at them differently you know definitely back then but on average i would say 150 pounds is your is your max or not your max your your average um i try to if if i'm going to go up to 200 pounds then i'm going to definitely wanting my big draft meal something i can carry carry that load differently and a lot of people when you say these numbers weight 150 pounds to a 200 pound load for a big draft cross meal and like well i weigh 175 pounds like that doesn't make any sense you're putting less weight on the pack mule than you are on the riding animal but it's dead weight we have to consider and that rides very differently than live weight where you can 
adjust and move with that animal. Whereas pack loads that it's just dead weight, that animal has to learn how to carry that weight and, and shift it back and forth on its own. Yeah. Because uh, it can't do that for you. But I've heard some people say 10% of the animal's body weight, which that's not very much. Yeah, I've heard that too. And I think, well, a thousand pound animal, you're okay. You know, yeah. it's, we're all breaking these rules. So, and yeah, from a fitter's point of view, you know, I, I get a little exhausted with my industry sometimes where they're talking about saddle fitting and mm. you know they they want a lot of cookie cutter rules and I always think back to well then how do you explain this animal and you know what I what I'm getting at is um, you know what some people call the weight bearing area of an animal so to the 18th rib well, that would go out the window when you're when you're packing, would that not? Like you, you're going to put put things over the lumbar area of the horse uh, or mule. You're you're going to use as much surface area of that animal as you can because it would would it not make more sense to spread weight out um, than have it centered over a smaller area? So that's a that's a good point there and <clears throat> when you got you got two styles of packing you got decker and sawbox uh decker packing you find more up north here uh up in Mon- you know montana idaho uh a little bit of oregon washington um colorado wyoming that's all decker country down south, California, Arizona, New Mexico. Um, that's all about country. And uh, more often than not, the argument that I hear for um, the benefit of, of Decker versus Sawbuck is that the Decker pack saddle is kind of like a um a riding saddle bar i mean it's, it's got the same length so you are distributing the same you're distributing the weight the same that you are with a with a western riding saddle the saw bike saddle <clears throat> and, and that sits up a little bit higher in, into the shoulder pocket you, you kind of fit that pack saddle like you would a riding saddle so they're single rig generally um but then the saw buck, that's much shorter bars, and that does fit back a little bit um, further back on on out of the shoulder pocket than it would a riding saddle. And the way that that's addressed is basically how you're going to weight that load and how you're going to build those loads. If that makes any yeah. sense, but yeah, I mean, I imagine over. You know, the, the people I find that are most concerned with, with saddle fitting are the, I'm going to get hung later for this, they're the ones who ride, they ride 45 minutes a day, right? You're 
when I whenever I have a, a client that's say an endurance rider or you know in your situation these are extreme situations and if whatever style of packing you would do I would imagine like hey look this is this would be a very short-term thing if it was that bad like if you know I imagine that every evening you know part of the process is really checking all of your equipment for you know loose stitching any uneven wearing things like that but also reading reading the mule or the horse correct yeah absolutely and the the point you make there how long we're we're in the saddle or how long we're, we're packing for this isn't um it's not a every person every day situation the same way a uh, an athlete you know trains and uh, utilizes their body and conditions their body is very different than 90% of the rest of the world they've got muscle built up they've got calluses built up They've got muscle memory built up in a way that, you know, the average person doesn't. It's the same way with the mule. The mule, quite literally, I mean, it's, it's an athlete. Do we go out and just take them from winter pasture, throw a pack, you know, a 200-pound pack load on them and start going 30 miles a day? Absolutely not. We're going to bring them in, and for the first month and a half of the season, Heck, we're just riding. We're just grabbing animals, getting on them, getting them legged up, getting them reconditioned, getting them ready uh, to go into the wilderness and extending our length of time where we're going so that their bodies are becoming back in tune and, and back into service condition. Uh, and when we go throughout the season, we're constantly tweaking our saddles. If you're going to put a saddle away and then just go grab it and throw it on an animal um, and build your load, swing your load and go and make no adjustments, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. So you should be adjusting that saddle constantly. So tell me a little more, more detail on, on adjusting. Like what is, what does that entail? Yeah. So because when they come in from winter pasture, you know, all they've been doing is hanging out and, and eating. So, they're a little bit rounder than uh, than they went went to winter pasture with, or you would like you would hope that they would be, because uh, they went they wintered well. And then as the season goes on, they go into kind of their fighting weight, and they get uh, leaned down, and they've lost that extra fat, and now they're just more or less muscle muscle mass. And as that body then changes, so does the saddle fit. The britching's going to uh hang a little looser it might hang lower you might need to adjust the angle that the britching meets that thigh same with the breast collar um their bellies are getting are getting smaller and so when you go and pull your cinch now you've got the rigging is out of balance one side's longer than the other so we got to compensate that for that and adjust our latigo so that we're pulling on our cinch evenly on both sides as they, you know, get healthier. Just like myself, 
when I start the season, I wear a size 31, 38 Wrangler. By the end of the season, I'm in a size 30. You know, I then let you come back <laughs> in <laughs> April and back in size 31. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're the same way. We gotta we gotta make those adjustments so that that'll fit them as best as we possibly can get it to fit. Yeah. We're never gonna have a perfect fitting saddle. No, so we can get pretty close. I that's thank you for saying that. The the amount of marketing that's out there to say fits perfectly and I'm like that's a dangerous terminology you know just doesn't belong in the world of saddle fitting that perfect fit is is um yeah uh, you know you're not fitting a static animal that never changes i mean and the better it fits the more you're expecting a, a positive change in their top line so yeah then you're back to oh i have saddle fit issue <laughs> you know and if the saddle doesn't fit well enough to create you know getting the horse using their back and and working correctly then you're getting a negative change by losing muscle mass right so it's it's a constant change and are you using um you know a a blanket type pad that's you know kind of folded or are you just using like hey uh, you know we always go with a one inch or three quarter inch felt or pad like how is it Myself personally, what I what I prefer to to run underneath my pack saddles is a um, a cool back or a wool back, some sort of natural fiber uh, blanket that I can not only flip 180 from front to head, but flip over completely, um, so that I can always have a clean surface. Yep. Uh, on the animal. That pad does generally um, make it sweat, but it's going to absorb that sweat. And the way, and, and so then if I take that pad, it's a smaller pad, it's less material, and I can take it to a stream and wash it, say, on a pack trip versus taking my full three-quarter inch or one-inch thick felt pad and if i try to wash that it's not going to be dry by the time i need it next after my layup no (laughs) like not even close to dry yeah not even close right so i can worry about cleaning that pad uh when i got time back at the back of the ranch but if i'm on a real long stint uh, you know i and i got a layover day just like i like clean socks you know they're going to want a clean pad too so i'll my, you know, layover days for them to rest, really. I still got work I got to get done, whether it's pack repair or, uh, or just, just general chores around the ranch or around the, around the camp. But my big thing is cleaning cinches and cleaning pads. And using a cool back or something like that helps me accomplish that goal in a timely manner. Um, and then on top of that cool back, I'll put a three-quarter inch um wool felt i prefer five star myself um and right now you know the the pack pack pad that is they currently offer you know if you went to the website i'm not a huge fan of that one it's too big it's too thick it's too bulky um and it's really hard to clean but you can go to that company and ask them to make you something a little bit different 
and uh, give them the dimensions and they'll, they'll, they'll custom make you a pack pad that's you know, three-quarter of an inch thick. If you didn't want to go that route, what is this? Uh, diamond wool. They make a real, real nice synthetic uh, felt pack pad that's got a canvas top on it. But something that's got some PSI distribution, a little bit more than you are going to get from, a, from just a, a cool back. Yeah, gotcha. Um, yeah. So yeah, and then I then, then the pack settle on top of that. So if I can just circle back to the the business side of things, like the the saddle making. So you know, in your in your bio, it says you know you you open the shop up to to you know people obviously saw what you were doing and were impressed, I, no doubt. But when you you know the business side of it what i think typically happens with a with saddle makers i think sometimes is they get swamped and they just think how can i make you know fill all these orders and stuff so tell me a little bit about you know what your approach to business is and you know you seem like the kind of person who's like look i this is a I run the business, the business doesn't run me, but if you want to expand on that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I'm not Amazon. <laughs> you know, the thing that a lot of people do need to remember, and it is, I do believe it is happening where people are accepting that uh, if you want Amazon, you got to go to Amazon. So if you want something different, if you want something that's, truly handmade, not something that just says it's handmade because the, the legal requirements of that was accomplished and they got a little tick on a piece of paper, but something that's truly, truly handmade, it's going to take a little time to make that. I just can't whip it up. Um, and for the business, you know, for that part, right, on my website, I'm very open with you. It could take, you know, at least three weeks for you to get your item. And if you don't want to wait that, that amount of time to get your item, then I'm not going to be the person for you. I, and, I, and I don't take any offense to that. If you want something quicker, then go get it. But if you want something that I've made by hand specifically for you, you got to give me that time. Um, and if you and if you're that type of person that thinks you're that, but you're really not, and you're going to ask me a lot of questions, um, uh, when's it ready? When's it ready? I'm just going to tell you when it's done. When it's done. When it's done. And then you'll get it when it's done. Uh, I want to get it to you as fast as I can, but I'm also I'm only one person, and I'm not going to um, cut corners. I'm not going to uh, outsource things. You know, I want to make everything here. You know, the bucking rolls. I can go buy bucking rolls, but I'd rather make my own bucking rolls because I've got otherwise waste product that would go in the garbage. Like it just helps complete that whole circle of, of the whole thing. Um, and then this year, what I'm going to have to do. Uh, is actually whatever I have in inventory this summer is that's that's all that is going to be available 
on online just so I can stay focused on on getting my saddle orders out and not be doing such as a trying to trying to fill those smaller orders um, you know for your press collars and frictions and handle bags and stuff like that. I'll have some of that in stock, but once it's gone, it's gone until next, you know, until the fall. Because I, I need to stay focused on these and getting these saddles out. Because there's a lot, you know, people without this tool, they really can't do their job. Everything else is kind of a luxury item. Yeah. But we need we need this saddle to be able to need the other stuff. That's right? that's kind of uh, how I. Feel too the saddle is you know so important that it's right like you know a saddle bag made by someone that you admire you know you, you yeah you can go and pick one up at your favorite tax store <laughs> and wait <laughs> till you have time to make me one or whatever but the the saddle is you know where your attention should be for sure i guess but um yeah your your customer then is it from your own niche like no one's you know a say a barrel, barrel racer isn't calling you up saying hey can you do something for me or is it you know just i it's 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 niche i i've had i i want to say like two maybe three people that i've that have contacted me and I gave them the name of somebody else that they, they should go and talk to them about a saddle um, because it was just totally out of my wheelhouse of what I want to do. Yep. And I think the big thing when people are, are, are getting into this, it's like you, you want to make everything under the stars because you want to be able to uh, please everybody. But in reality, what you're doing is you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing your customer a disservice because there's a lot of stuff there that you don't want to make. And if you go and you try to make that and you find yourself not liking it, then it's not going to be the best product you you can make. So just make the things that you want, you, you want to make and, and then the quality will show at the end, and then so will your reputation and your and your brand and your name will then grow from that. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I, most most everybody that I ever talk to, though, they see my product, they see what I do with my product, and they go, ah, that's what that's what I've been looking for. I want that's what I need, and. Uh, if if you want a slightly different horn, I mean I'll I'll tweak things just a little bit, but not a whole lot, because um, this is what I this is what I believe the saddle should be, and if you believe that too, awesome, I'm going to make you one. If you don't and you want it to be something entirely different, like you want an association style tree, totally different ball game. I'm I'm not really into that i don't do that kind of writing um but there's other amazing people out there that can do that for you for sure and um, i don't know if you agree but the more you work with a tree you like from a business point of view you're you're just 
it's like you don't have to keep changing dance partners like that tree you know how your patterns fit it just goes together beautifully it's a pleasure to work on and then someone's like could you just tweak or do this or i need this tree and it's like why did i ever agree to this i just added three hours onto my you know day that i (laughs) not going to get paid for (laughs) right yeah 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 Yeah. that's exactly right for sure so i i don't want to keep you too much longer because i think um just been amazing talking to you but what advice do you have for the up-and-coming generation i mean i'm really hoping that saddle making still is is something that people aspire to or or even out of necessity think i'll just do it you know i gotta do this what Mm -hmm. you know what what do you say to people who are like i i should have done this or i'm thinking my 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 son or daughter should get into this well uh get out of your own way that's the big thing is that uh the only limitations we have are really the ones that we put on ourselves and to go into that a little bit more is that i get a lot of people asking me um how do i do this or i want to get into this but i just don't know where to start um and to that, I have to go to what a good friend of mine, Andy, once told me, and that's to change the scale that you're looking at the problem at. And you know, you look at a saddle and like, wow, that's a really complicated thing. There's a lot of leather on there. There's a lot of parts, and how does all go together? It's too much. Well, if you have to zoom out to understand that first step then do that don't try to understand it all at once Um, just figure out the one thing in your head and then figure out the next and then figure out the next it's not going to be perfect the first time you do it Um, but you learn how it all goes together better over time the more you do it but don't get overwhelmed with it. Just it's just a complicated thing. I can't do it. Um, just take a step back and, and change that perspective on on that problem, and and then and then go and, and address that. Yeah, that's fantastic that advice. Yeah, and uh, lastly, my last question. I, you know, where do you feel? The future of saddlery is, I, I to me, I I look at it as it's a, it's something that's not really broken as far as the materials and methods go. Um, I mean, how do mm-hmm. you feel? I I don't see it broken one bit. We all do the same thing. We just do it slightly different. I mean, we're all gonna. There's always gonna be someone who looks at building a saddle in a slightly different way than the guy that came before us. Um, and that's, that's cool to see. Uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, we try to come up with, you don't have to come up with a whole new fandangle thing. Um, but I, I think, 
I think we'll continue to see the growth and popularity in this way of life and building saddles um, as we kind of realize that to go backwards, we actually kind of need to, or to go forwards, we actually kind of need to go backwards a little bit and um, get away from the IT, the, you know, the city life, the office people, uh, that actuality, that's not, that's not filling the needs that are, that are, uh, that we need in this world. And we were told, got to go to college, you got to get a degree, and then, then you got to go get a job to pay off that degree, and then you're going to be set for life. Well, that's not necessarily true. Um, and I think a lot of people in my generation and the generation below are beginning to see that. Uh, you still have definitely the, the stronghold that they want to go with the city. They want to go with that technology side of life, and that's great. Go do that. But anybody that um, has the inclination that they, they want to do this, I see it more and more where the parents are going, heck, I don't know anything about that, but go do it. I got a, I got a young man that comes in here. He just turned 14. Um, parents have nothing to do with horses, nothing to do with uh, riding, nothing to do with packing, nothing to do with saddles, nothing to do with leather. Uh, but he, that's what he wants to do. And he's being encouraged to do that. And I think I see that more and more than I did when I was growing up, when I was his age. So that, that to me is a promising time. I think it's going to keep growing. That's amazing. Yeah. So in closing, I, I really wanted to give you a bit of space to, to talk about ataxia. And, um, you know, because I think it's important what as soon as I saw on your website that, you know, a bit of backstory with your father, but also I thought there's there's a saddle guy with a a reason, you know, like I can just imagine, you know, after you, you know, it's saddle making can be hard on you and some days you're questioning like man you know like and i i just think you have a an incredible kind of built-in thing and going i know my reason i know why i'm getting up in the morning i know what i'm doing here and and i'd love for you to just have a bit of time to to tell everyone about about that yeah man my my reason is is a tactic um and what I mean by that is, if you watch someone like I did, my dad, uh, slowly be imprisoned into his own body over 18 years, over the span of 18 years, to go from a guy that two him double backflips in an orange jumpsuit off Mount Baker to at the end of his life an electric wheelchair, barely even able to talk. And you see that happen um, through your formative years in life. If that doesn't change how you look at the world, then I, 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 I got nothing for you. Because um, it, it, you know, I, I like to think of ataxia as a thief. You know, it, it just slowly steals your life and imprisons you 
into your body and your mind is fully intact. It's, your thoughts are just as clear as they were before, um, but your body has a disconnect. And so you become in prison. And that's oftentimes what's really, really hard on families that are dealing with ataxia is that level of frustration. And my dad was just furious at the fact that he couldn't pick up a wrench anymore and and change the oil, oil in the truck. And he was a diesel mechanic for the school district. Um, and uh, he couldn't ride his motorcycle anymore. That was, he laid it, it, he was trying to get on and his leg just gave out and he set the bike down and he picked it, was able to pick it up and he hadn't even left the driveway. He walked inside, he says, that'll be the last time I get on my bike. And you could see it just killing him inside of him. He knew that he couldn't do that anymore. That ataxia had taken yet another thing. And your dexterity goes, um, your ability to walk, your, you go from a cane to a walker, to a walker, to a wheelchair, to a, a push wheelchair, to an electric wheelchair. And it just like slowly, slowly, slowly chips away at you. But for me, seeing that happen as a kid, I made the real, real quick determination that at every single point in my day, I have to ask plenty of myself every day because tomorrow it may not be the same way. I don't know if I have a text you. Uh, myself. I haven't gotten tested for it right now. I don't know if I need, if, if I was say if I was to become positive for it. There's, there really isn't anything um, that they can do to stop it. You know, we got some drugs that are in the work that are showing real promising signs to, to stop the progression of it once you show signs and symptoms. But we don't have anything that's just like, here's your, here's your cure, take the pill and it's gone. Um, and then the insurance complications too, if you have, you know, you got the whole pre-existing condition thing and yeah, so I just haven't really gotten myself tested and my brothers, they have not as well, kind of the same sort of line of thinking. Um, but it, it definitely changed my entire outlook on, on life at a very, very, very young age to where you know, death is final, but life is full of possibilities. So get to it, get going. Um, and I'm not going to do something that uh, I don't like doing. And so I've, I've directed my life in a way that if there's something that I like, then I'm going to go down that path and try to learn and discover as much as I possibly can um, in the short period of time I have so that every day I do get up and go to work, um, I'm stoked. I'm excited to come to work. You know, I, I move my shop pretty much seven days a week from eight o'clock till, till I'm done. And then in the summertime, if I'm not packing in the mountains, I'm in my shop. Because um, these are all things that I find pleasure in doing. And, uh, that yeah, so that's 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 where ataxia directed my life, um, and the reason why I, 
that I do the things that I do do is that um, it's one of those, you know, taxes is one of those diseases that is hardly anybody ever knows about. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not something big pharma wants anything to do. When it affects less than one in a hundred thousand people in the world, why do they want to spend the money on that? They're not going to, they're not going to get a return on their investment. Um, so that means that we, as the as the population whole, we have to step up. We have to help fund that. We have to make that possible because we're not looking at it for profit. We're looking at it for profit in life, um, which has no monetary value. So when I finished this, the Mexico to Canada ride, um, and the first person asked me, "Can I, I? I'd like to buy one of your saddles. Can you make me one?" I was like, "You really what? You want to buy this from me?" <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah. We think you just proved your product, and I want it." And so, okay. Um, and so I made it and sold it. And I said, "Well, there it is. That's the way I can continue. I've got this ability to make this thing that uh, a lot of people." need and and, and uh, will impact their life and why don't I just uh, give a portion of, you know, of this to that so I can continuously give and not just have it be a one hit wonder. I did this awesome thing. I rode more miles than most people will in their entire life and uh, it's done. Okay, close it after move on. But the disease isn't gone. It's still here. Um, how how are we gonna keep keep uh, donating or uh, contributing to that? And that's where the shop came from. Yeah, that's just a beautiful story. I, you know, it's you never ever ever have to question your motivation, do you? Like you you know why you're there. I'll just love that, and we'll make sure we yeah provide a link for for people so they can understand ataxia better and, and donate if they if they want to yeah there's a donate button on my website um which just takes you to a portal uh that uh, allows you to to donate and and it just what that one does is if you want to is is a um memorial to to my dad that doesn't mean you you can go to Ataxia, uh, the National Ataxia Foundation's website, and make a donation in whoever name you want. You know, it's, it's, whether it's five dollars or five hundred dollars, it doesn't matter. But yeah. re uh, money, money buys research, and research finds a cure. Yeah, so. that's yeah, mesothelioma. I can never say that. It took my father asbestosis, um, and. Um, you know, stealing someone's life before your eyes slowly. Uh, I totally get it, and uh, anyone who's lived through that would would totally understand how it uh, molds and shapes your future, and how you realize that uh, and nothing's taken for granted here. I, you know, y you don't know when when your next checkup is going to be bad news or something, and it's not a it's not a a morbid thought. It's a did you waste an hour today? Did you waste a day this yeah. week? 
what are you doing? Get on yeah. with it. There are 24 hours a day. Start living to your fullest potential, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah fantastic. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I know it can sound sad talking about people we've loved, but it, the reality is it's supposed to be inspiring, right? It's uh, to celebrate their life is, you know, and respect them truly is by, by showing them I'm not wasting anything. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. That's exactly it. Yeah. You know, if, if I, if I die tomorrow or, you know, my, if I would like to know that anything that came after me was picking up where I left off and then improving on that. Yeah. Fantastic. And always moving, moving forward. Yeah. For Don't sure. Waste any of it. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I, I agree. Wonderful. So this has just been a, a great conversation. I really enjoyed meeting you and uh, I hope uh, that we can do this again at some point. I'm sure there's uh, lots and lots we can talk about in the industry and and I know nothing about packing. I feel like I've had a little bit of uh, curiosity bug ignited for sure. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. Yeah, you bet. Let's do it. Awesome. All right. Thanks very much. Cool. We'll talk to you later, Kristen. This is Trent Peterson with the Wild Inox Saddlery, based in the Methow Valley, Washington State. I am a saddle maker and a meal packer, donating 3% of its profits to the Ataxia Foundation. And I am the first guest on Christian Lowe's Saddler's Post. This has been the Saddler's Post with Christian Lowe. Thank you for listening. The Saddler's Post is sponsored by Christian Lowe Leather Care. Visit christianlowe.ca.